2,000 years ago, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever wants to lose their life for me will find it. And he is still saying this today. This has not changed. This dying that all of us will have to do is the greatest test, the greatest barrier between you and faithfulness to the way of Jesus. If you qualify your willingness to follow Jesus by saying, but you can't have this part of me, then you cannot follow Jesus. Because he is leading you to a cross to die. And you can hold nothing back. If we qualify our willingness to follow Jesus by saying, but you can't have this part of me, then we can't follow him because he's asking everything of us. And time and time and time and time again, in the New Testament, he did this. And it wasn't localized to 2,000 years ago. He's doing the same thing today. In the Old Testament, uh, one of the central figures, there are two primary figures that sort of dominate the landscape of the Old Testament. One of those is Moses. Uh, the other one is King David. And if you know anything about King David, uh, which probably you do, whether you grew up in church or not, there are some pretty famous stories about King David. There are also some pretty infamous stories about King David. He did a lot of amazing things. He was a man after God's own heart. He had uh, the power of the Holy Spirit upon him on multiple occasions. And then there were times... Uh, where he didn't. And one of those times where he didn't, uh, where he sort of did his own thing, a uh, very famous story where he committed a pretty uh, grievous sin, and then he compounded it by committing almost an even worse sin, depending on how you judge that sort of thing, and he just kind of got himself uh, in a very, very bad spot. So uh, at that time, uh, God appointed prophets, usually one at a time, to sort of help out the nation of Israel and to sort of assist the king in hearing the voice of God and discerning the will of God and what they should or shouldn't do uh, in terms of the nation. And so at this time, uh, when King David committed the most famous of his sins and compounded it, but then by committing additional sins, God sent the prophet Nathan at the time, who was the appointed prophet uh, for Israel, to uh, David to confront him. And so uh, if you know anything about the prophets in the Old Testament, it's not uh, a role that you necessarily would want. Uh, so imagine that you are just this guy and you're going to confront the king on something he's done wrong. When you're doing that, you're taking your life uh, literally into your own hands. You better be sure uh, that you're hearing from God and you have to have a lot of trust in God in that, in that moment. So Nathan shows up uh, post David's sin and he tells this story to David, and it's basically a, similar to a parable like Jesus told in the New Testament. And he gives David this example, and he says, imagine there's this guy, and he has all this stuff, and there's this other guy. And I'm, this is the, my version of it, by the way, not actual literal scripture, uh, if you didn't notice. So there's this guy, and he has all this stuff. And then there's another guy who doesn't really have anything but this one thing. And the guy who's got all this stuff decides that he wants the thing that the guy who only has the one thing has, so he takes it from him. Uh, what do you think should be done to this guy that took the one thing from the guy that only had one thing? And David is hot. He's frustrated. He's angry. And he's like, well, that dude should be in serious trouble. He should basically be killed. Right? And Nathan says, guess what? That's you. Right? And we can laugh about it, but here's the truth. 
We all do that. We all have the tendency when we hear something uh, to assume it's not about us. We all have the tendency to project. We all have the tendency to deflect responsibility, to refuse to take ownership. We all have blind spots. Could we agree on that? We all have blind spots. And we know people in our lives that have lots of blind spots and they refuse to acknowledge they have blind spots. And we all know people in our lives that have blind spots and they're humble about it. And they admit, man, I do, I do struggle in that area or I did not see that. And they own it and take responsibility. So today, the, the pretext for my message is don't be like David in that moment, right? In the sense of don't recognize, or they're refusing to recognize that it's about you, that it might be about you. Not saying that it is. I'm saying don't project this morning. Don't think of other people who might need to hear this message. Other people who you might think of. Don't elbow the person next to you and be like, you really need to. Like, did you write that down? Because you should have. Don't do that, okay? Think, I just want you to internalize it and consider what I'm saying uh, just as I've considered it in preparation for this regarding myself. So, uh, in the 1999 film Fight Club, which I wouldn't recommend any of you seeing, but uh, in, in that film, there's a really iconic scene, one of many. Uh, the two main characters, if you didn't know, are played by Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. And there's an iconic scene where they're in a house and Brad Pitt takes Edward Norton's hand and kind of grabs it firmly, and he holds it up, and he kisses it really awkwardly, and Edward Norton says, what is, what's going on? And then he takes lye, you know what that is, and he pours it on his hand. And he says, this is a chemical burn. It's going to hurt worse than you've ever burn, been burned, and it will leave a scar. And it, starts, and it shows in the film his skin bubbling, right, from this chemical burn. So Edward Norton, as he's being burned, he tries to uh, meditate, he tries to remove himself from the situation. Uh, the way that it's put in the film is I'm going to go to my cave and I'm going to find my power animal. All right? So it's another form of sort of new age mysticism where he can disassociate himself from the situation. And he tries to do that and Brad Pitt slaps him across the face and says, no, don't do that. He says, this is the greatest moment of your life, man, and you're off somewhere missing it. He's disassociating himself from the reality of this pain and what it might mean, right? And then he says, you have to know, Brad Pitt says to Edward Norton, I'll let you go when you know, you have to know, but not fear. You have to know, but not fear that someday you are going to die. You have to know, not fear, that someday you are going to die. And Edward Norton responds as the, Lie is burning his hand. He says, but you don't know how this feels. And in that moment, Brad Pitt takes off his glove that he, was, that he had, holds up his hand, and shows him the same lip-shaped scar that he had received earlier. 1 John 4, 1 through 6, as we continue on in this series, Love and Light. John is, is writing... This letter, as we've talked about, and I don't want to revisit all that context, but if you haven't noticed, John doesn't like to mess around. He's pretty intense. He's straightforward because he has serious concerns. And he's writing this to uh, this church. He says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. There's that word again that I preached on a few Sundays ago. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. There's another one of those famous verses we've talked about so often in this series. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us, and this is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. In this letter, which we've kind of explained is actually more of a sermon, John was addressing in this text right here, these six verses and other places throughout these five chapters, he's addressing a very specific heresy that was being perpetuated by a very specific group of people who had be, at times seemed like they were a part of the church, but then had left the church. Not only did they leave the church, they were actually trying to drag and convince others to leave the church as well by preaching to them something different than the gospel. And John's making this differentiation here, right? In doing so, in identifying this, he says, as a way of differentiating light from darkness, he says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So again, he's giving clarity. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Right, and of course, we still, I hope, we still here today, the vast majority of us, I would think, we still understand this is true. We still understand, and we've talked about this, especially a couple months ago in our I Am series. We talked about this at length. The reality that if somebody says, ah, oh, Jesus was just a good man, or he was just a prophet, or he was just a teacher, or he was just that, that's, that's not of the Spirit. That is not the Christian faith, Right? Jesus didn't leave room for that. So we still understand that if somebody says, well, Jesus was just this or was just that, and some people now it's popular to say, well, Jesus wasn't really literally bodily resurrected. It was just the spirit that returned, or they just imagined it. It just inspired them to do this, which is just absolutely insane, but whatever. So that, that kind of stuff. So we still understand that if Jesus has come in the flesh, and we acknowledge that, we believe that, and that he was all the things he said he was, that he's from God. Anybody who doesn't agree with that, it's not from God. And we understand that is true, but with a very, and this is where we're going to head today, with a very, very important caveat. John says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. To confess this word, to confess, that, that word means something different than maybe what we assume that it means. To confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh means to agree with that statement, yes. But it also means something more. Because James tells us that the demons all agree with that statement. The demons all agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come in the flesh. James, in sort of rebuking, some people in the early church, he says, you believe that there is one God? You believe in Jesus in the flesh? Congratulations. Even the demons believe that. And they tremble in fear. He's saying, some of you believe that, but you don't even have a fear of God. 
Demons do that. How does that separate you? No, it goes beyond that, right? To confess the truth about Jesus, as it's laid out here, implies submitting your life to him as Lord. Which leads us to the focus of our message for this morning. If John addressed a very specific heresy in this church that was leading people astray, that was drawing them out, that was confusing people, that was creating all kinds of problems, something that was false. As I thought about this, I wondered to myself, what is then the great heresy of Western Christianity in 2021? Who are our false prophets? And don't worry, I'm not going to name names. In what way or ways have the spirits of the Antichrist infiltrated the church by masquerading as angels of light? Have you ever heard that verse? The enemy masquerades as an angel of light? In other words, he's good at fooling people. So what is the great heresy of Western Christianity in 2021? Who are our false prophets? In what ways have the spirit or spirits, plural of the Antichrist, infiltrated the church by masquerading as angels of light? Pretty heady and heavy questions. I suppose strong cases could be made uh, for several different answers here. But the one I personally see, so this you're, you're hearing just my thoughts, reflections regarding this, the one that I personally see as being the most prominent, the most readily accepted, and by far the most lethal when it comes to heresy, false teaching, false prophecy, spirit of the Antichrist, is this. If you're taking notes, it's going to be on the screen. It's this. Christianity without the cross. Christianity without the cross. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it, a soft Christianity using all the right words but missing the profound revolutionary truth. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever wants to lose their life for me will find it. And he is still saying this today. This has not changed. This dying, big statement to start us off, this dying that all of us will have to do is the greatest test, the greatest barrier between you and faithfulness to the way of Jesus. This dying that all of us will have to do is the greatest test, the greatest barrier between us, between me. You can personalize it. The dying that I will have to do is the greatest barrier between me and faithfulness to the way of Jesus. So what does it mean to take up your cross now? Because we live in a world of what I would call celebrated deconversion, where the be true to yourself mantra is the banner under which which innumerable, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, under which innumerable former Christians are now heading to the exits. And not of church, but of faith. 
They are leaving behind the faith. The truth is that the cross to this day, 2,000 years later, the cross continues to alienate. Jesus is just fine if he doesn't tell us what to do. Or he can tell us what to do, just as long as we like what he has to say. As long as it feels right. And this goes for both conservative and progressive quasi-Christians alike. Everyone is fine, but Jesus correcting people, they don't like. The right is happy to have Jesus lecture the left about gender and sexual identity, but they don't want to hear Jesus talk about divorce or money or the poor and the oppressed. And the left really wants Jesus to give the conservatives a stern talking to when it comes to social justice and racism. But he'd better keep his sex ethics and his claims of exclusivity to himself. Because it just doesn't feel right. And yet, another big statement, denying what often feels right, denying ourselves some of the things we want most in life in order to obey Jesus is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And if you don't do it, you cannot follow Jesus. Point blank, period. Denying what often feels right is at the core. The Old Testament puts it like this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but that way leads to death. Everyone is going to have to die. For centuries, we've spent so much time romanticizing the cross that it no longer holds any scandal for us. For most of us, the cross is either a thing of beauty or a thing without consequence. An icon so familiar that it just blends easily into the background. To the disciples, though, the cross was more than just simple defeat. It was the misery, the shame, the suffering and humiliation of a criminal condemned to death, which is exactly what God became in Jesus. But Jesus, I hear all this thing about taking up your cross and following you, but it's hard, Jesus. You don't know how this feels. And he holds up his hands. And he shows us his feet. As Josh Porter puts it, God is dead, and now it's your turn. Denying yourself is still the least popular of Jesus' teachings in all the world. I think that's a safe thing we can agree on, isn't it? Denying yourself is the least popular. No teaching of Jesus comes with such intense offense to the modern sensibility as self-denial. Now, let me step aside for a second and bring you back to the beginning where I talked about King David. Because right here, this statement, no teaching of Jesus comes with such intense offense to the modern sensibility as self-denial. You could easily right now be going, yeah, those people out there who want to do what they want to do, and those people on the right, or those people on the left, or those people doing this or whatever, yeah, they don't want to do that. No, 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 no. Talking right now to you guys. I'm talking right now to me. 
our modern sensibilities, who we are right now. It still offends us. The gospel of our culture, and oftentimes, again, what I said earlier about what's infiltrated the church, the gospel of our culture is self-fulfillment. The gospel of social media is narcissistic self-celebration. The gospel of entitlement assures us and tells us over and over again that we deserve comfort and security and entertainment and amusement and all the bells and whistles that our hearts desire. And if something disrupts that comfort, this is big right here, if something disrupts that comfort, we've been taught to assume that it's bad. It must be bad. But if something does disrupt our comfort, the good news, the the gospel of the 21st century Western world is that we can fight back against it. We can just get another screen. We can just get, follow somebody else on Twitter. We can just have more outlets for outrage and complaint to talk about how terrible things are. We can just pop another pill. We can just download another app. We can just continue to the pursuit of happiness as though we know what that actually is. We might deny ourselves in the way of a diet or a career to look good or to make money, but it's very difficult for us to conceive of a happy, fulfilled life that doesn't include getting what we want on our terms. Am I tracking with you guys at all so far? Okay, just want to check in. Okay. We're terrified that if we're denied our dreams or a soapbox on which to speak, if we can't sleep with the person of our choosing, we're somehow less human or less fulfilled, again, as if we actually know what true fulfillment is. Nearly everything in this post-Christian culture insists that self-denial is oppression and that self-fulfillment is the only authentic Happiness is the only way, excuse me, to happiness and truth. And yet, in the midst of all this, right here, August 1st, 2021, in the midst of all this, right here, right now, at 10.50 a.m., here stands Jesus with his arms extended and open wide, and he's making an offer to us of a kingdom, of his kingdom. A big question for this morning, a big question for this morning, and not just this morning, but maybe every morning that you wake up is this, and you could print this out and put it on your refrigerator or put it by your nightstand or whatever. It's something that maybe wouldn't be a bad idea to think of every single morning when you wake up is this. It's on the screen. Do you really believe that the Jesus way of life is the best way? Do you really believe it? Not do you espouse it verbally. Not do you confess it with your mouth. But does your life embody it? Do you really believe that the Jesus way of life is the best way? And if you don't know what the Jesus way of life is that I'm talking about, then I'd love to have that conversation with you more in depth. And I'm talking about those of you that maybe didn't grow up in church and this is your first time here this morning, or those of you that have been a Christian for 20 years and somehow you just missed it. 
That's okay. Let's not worry about that. Let's start now. Do you really believe that the Jesus way of life is the best way? Does your life ordered around it? <laughs> is everything you do ordered around Jesus? Do you recognize that your breath is actually his breath? Do you recognize that there actually is no more you, but you've been crucified with Christ? The truth is that then, 2,000 years ago and now, everyone must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. Everyone is going to have to die. To say yes to Jesus, then, is to say no to innumerable competing options. Now, I've got a laundry list of them. This is maybe the only, most and only practical part of this entire message from like a here's what to do thing. It's something to think about. It's to say no to innumerable competing options. No to spending my money however I want. No to eating however I want. No to hyper-individualism. No to social media image curation. No to me first. No to careerism, no to getting ahead, no to being liked all the time, no to making idols of my children and their activities, no to the American dream, no to my sexuality expressed however I want. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to innumerable competing options, and this is just a handful of them. To move it out a bit of abstraction and into some practical, feel free Notice a lot of cameras didn't go up on that one. Just saying, sometimes I see a lot. There was like one. <laughs> Don't be like David. The great Quaker mystic Thomas Kelly said, some, said it like this very poetically. He said, nothing else in all of heaven or earth counts so much as his will, his slightest wish, his faintest breathing. Holy obedience, sensitive as a shadow, obedient as a shadow, selfless as a shadow. Think about what a shadow, get that poetic part of it. It moves as we move. It doesn't have a will of its own. Not reluctantly, but with ardor. That's passion, willingness. One longs to follow him gladly, urgently, promptly. One leaps to do his bidding ready to run and not be weary, ready to walk and not faint. The disciple of Jesus, by definition, says to his or her master, what you say, I will do. Where you say to go, I will go. You are the master, I am the apprentice, not the other way around. And yet many of us who identify as Christians treat God as if he is a domesticated pet, to refer back to that text in James, you believe there is one God? Congratulations. Even the demons believe that, and at least they tremble in fear. Many of us who acknowledge Jesus, that he came in the flesh, that he is who he said he was, all these things, for whatever reason, though, we don't tremble in fear. We don't have a sense of holy awe. We don't have a sense of obligation. We don't have a sense of the moment, to be honest. We don't have a sense of the reality of the climate that we're in. I love what Dorothy Sayers says about this. She says, this is such a great quote. She says, the people who hanged Christ 
never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for latter generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium, which is, again, boredom. Blah, ho-hum. No big deal. We have sufficiently pared the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. You believe that there's one God? Even the demons believe that, at least they take it seriously. Our God's a consuming fire. He's not a little nice thing in your fire pit to be tended to once in a while. Oftentimes what we do when we declaw the Lion of Judah is we keep him around to gratify us, to pet him on the head, to do our bidding, maybe to give us some comfort when we need it. As John Mark McMillan says it, everyone's calling for a covenant but nobody's drawing blood. We want Jesus, and we want the benefits that we think are associated with him, but don't ask anything of us. Don't ask us to deny ourselves. Don't ask us, Jesus, to take up our cross. Here's the truth. If you qualify your willingness to follow Jesus by saying, but you can't have this part of me, then you cannot follow Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> because he is leading you to a cross to die. And you can hold nothing back. If we, if we qualify our willingness to follow Jesus by saying, but you can't have this part of me, then we can't follow him because he's asking everything of us, and time and time and time and time again in the New Testament, he did this. And it wasn't localized to 2,000 years ago. He's doing the same thing today. And this is, guys, this, I hope you hear this is as true. This is no less true for me than it is for you. I'm no closer to having this down than many of you. I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody today. We don't want to hold anything back. It's a prerequisite to discipleship that we say, it's all yours, Jesus. Again, it's easy to pick on our culture's apprehensiveness to the invitation of Jesus. But it was a tough sell in the first century as well. Jesus knew then and, and as well as now that the invitation to take up your cross would be widely rejected, if not by most people who hear it. And of this inevitability, Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. These are the only two options. These are the only two options. If you want to save your life, you will lose it. If you want to lose your life for the sake of Jesus, you will find it. But the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that the way of Jesus is the best way. 
And there's a whole other sermon I could, that I wanted almost to preach today on the beauty of the kingdom and all that Jesus offers. And then it's maybe not what you've been told in terms of being tedious and boring and lame. And yeah, I wouldn't want that either. And the image of God that some of you have in your minds is not a God that I believe in either. I wouldn't want any part of that because it's not the God of the Bible. It's not the kingdom that Jesus offers. But this is the invitation of, the Jesus, of Jesus, is come lose your life to find it. And this invitation begins with a cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously paraphrased Jesus in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. All of discipleship is predicated on our ability or inability to realize this pre- prerequisite. Again, to quote Pastor Josh Porter, he says this, Christian spiritual formation rests on this indispensable foundation of death to self and cannot proceed except insofar as that foundation is being firmly laid and sustained. In other words, if you don't do this, you're not doing anything. What Jesus called life to the fullest Life abundantly, which we talk about a lot around here. What Jesus called life to the fullest can never be realized except through the increasingly narrow crucible of self-denial. Why is it increasingly narrow, maybe you ask? Because at the beginning there's a joy and you have all of this stuff. And maybe he asks this or that to deny yourself and that's easy. But as you eliminate things, it gets smaller. And then you say, well, this too. And this too. And then it gets smaller. And he says, well, this too and this too. And then you're like, I'm pretty sure I've got it down. And then he's like, well, actually, you're holding this, 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 and this back, and you didn't realize it, and you're like, "Mm, I am, and I don't want to, but I am, and darn it, (laughs) it's going to hurt. Everyone is going to have to die. We have to know, not fear, that we're going to die. Within this church, we, including me right here, top of the list, within this church, we have a lot of dying to do. But this should be good news. It should be really good news because the way of Jesus and following it together and dying together so that we can see more of his kingdom becomes a shared experience of painful growth and maturity for each of us who accepts the invitation to lift his his or her cross. There will be seasons of life in which it seems like you're paying more than someone else. When it seems as if your cross is heavier or heaviest. And we all have desires, things that we believe we need to make us happy. And we point fingers at other people and cry, hey, Jesus, they're dying way less than me. You've asked me to do this, and I haven't seen them do anything. And like Jesus said to Peter, after he was resurrected, when Peter was all worried about John, Jesus says to us, what business is that of yours? You follow me. We need to forget 
the imperfections and the chaos of other people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, dying or worrying about what they're doing. We need to remember this. God did the dying first. When we get to the point where we're saying, oh, they're dying less than me, or oh, Jesus, this hurts, and we're complaining and feeling entitled and that we need to have all this stuff, it's, we have to be able to say, Jesus, you don't know, and he's able to hold up his hand. You don't know how this feels. Oh, wait a second. Some of you are feeling like that on the inside right now with this message. Let's be honest. Jesus is who we're called to emulate, not anybody else. But you don't understand, Jesus, how much is you're asking of me. I mean, I have to give up a relationship or an identity or a fortune or a dream or a career. Jesus says, come and die. But I'd have to wake up earlier. I'd have to change my habits and change my way of life. Come and die. But how much will you require? I mean, I don't really want to let God into this part of me. I don't want him to ask this of me. How much will Jesus ask? All of it, all of you, everything. Dying to self is not a self-help seminar. It's not a weekend retreat. To follow Jesus, everything must bow to him. Some of it will be rearranged and edited and transformed, but much of it will simply have to die. Jesus says this over and over and over again, and then it's re-emphasized throughout the New Testament for all the different writers in there. Put to death whatever therefore belongs to your earthly nature. Just one of many verses. So how can so high a demand and such a big ask possibly be any good? And here's the truth. Because the all-powerful creator God of the universe emptied himself into nothing, was naked and powerless, was stripped bare and laid open and abandoned. And this was the ultimate masterwork of his wild, beautiful, self-sacrificial love for you. He did this so that you could inherit a kingdom as beloved sons and daughters, as we sang earlier, of the king. God of the universe gave everything over to death in order to love us first. And he asks for our reciprocation. Not just in lip service, but in life service. Let me invite the worship team to come up at this time. These days, you know, it seems, and maybe you're not as aware of this as myself and maybe Pastor Jordan are and kind of the work that we get to do. We just see it all the time in the circles we run in and things we hear about. But these days, it seems as if there's like a digital ticker tape parade for the quote-unquote courageous individuals who renounce his or her faith. They publish books. They launch podcasts. They write blogs. And they make a lot of money doing it. But here's the truth. This, this is nothing revolutionary, but it's good just to say it. Bailing out is easy. Anyone can do that. You know, many people do. And they've been doing it for hundreds and, back to Jesus, thousands of years. 
You know what's hard? It's faithfulness. Faithfulness is costly. No one's throwing a digital ticker tape parade or offering a book deal or launching a podcast to somebody who's been a faithful Christian and quietly gone about their life in service and devotion to Jesus for 40 years. No one's going to find that person. Faithfulness is difficult. Faithfulness is costly. That's why in all four of the Gospels we read that the central prerequisite for a disciple of Jesus is to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, Luke even adds an extra line. It says, take up your cross and follow me daily. That's why I said that question earlier about do we really believe maybe a good daily thing. Father of modern psychology, Sigmund Freud, argued that human beings are animals compelled by instinct for the purpose of pleasure. And when we repress those instincts, we suffer as a result. Not doing what you want to do, well, that's inauthentic. There's no hashtags for that. The disciple of Jesus Last thing here for you, notes-wise, are on the screen. The disciple of Jesus embraces the lifelong work of crucifying the old self, not entertaining or placating or coddling every desire. Instead, we cultivate, nurture, and develop the things of the Spirit. And the things of the flesh, as we're told over and over again, we nail to a stake and we leave them there for dead again and again and again. Make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision to gratify the desires of the flesh, we're told. Put to death whatever belongs to that nature. Do whatever you need to do to kill that stuff off and then leave it there for dead. And on that stake that we nail it to, hang some of the modern day mantras of the flesh. Hashtag you do you. We leave that on the stake. Hashtag be true to yourself. Leave that one there as well. Hashtag do what makes you happy. Throw some dirt on that one. Hashtag follow your heart. Do that and leave those to rot. Again and again, day after day, Jesus was crucified to show us how, and now we follow in his example. This is, again, if you get anything today, this is a way of life. This is not an intellectual assent to a set of beliefs. This is not a confessing with your mouth. This is not agreeing fundamentally on some level with a set of doctrines. This is a way of life. We look into the eyes of God the Father with trust, and we take his hand and allow him to lead us into all these great things he's promised us, life and hope and future and peace and goodness and joy and love. But first, he will lead us to the cross. If we want to, as Paul said, to know the resurrection power, which I know is a bit abstract maybe for some of you, but if you want to know the resurrection power, that Jesus had, like Paul said, he wanted to know. First, we have to share in his sufferings 
Many people want the resurrection power, but they do not want the suffering and the death that necessarily precede it. We have a lot of dying to do, but this is good news because we truly believe that the way of Jesus is the best way. And when we say, or when we struggle, or when we think this is too much, or Jesus, you don't know how this feels, that image that I have alluded to multiple times, he holds up his hands and he shows us his hands and he shows us his feet as he did to Thomas. And he said, no longer be doubting, but believe. Let me invite the communion servers forward at this time. As we will do now, as we get to do each week, we'll take communion as a church family to celebrate what Christ has done for us. That he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the very nature of a servant. And in doing so, he became obedient, even to the point of death. He gave himself up, his body beaten and bruised, his blood shed, he gave himself up. He died so that we might live. Now let us die again that we might have new life in him. Let me pray and you can come take communion. Jesus, thank you that you are our model, that you are our example, but that you are also our savior and Lord, that you went before us and did those things that we could not do for ourselves, that where we were far off from God, that you have made it so we are now brought near, that we were once in darkness and now we are in light, that we were once strangers to you, and now we are a part of your family, that we are now seated in heavenly places, and we are receiving an inheritance that cannot be shaken. Jesus, we know that everything in this world can be shaken and will be shaken, but the only thing that matters is the only thing that can't be shaken, and that is your kingdom. We want to receive that with joy, even as you lead us to the cross. We want to die beautiful deaths on behalf of your kingdom. Give us the strength through your Holy Spirit to do that. Let us hold nothing back because you did it. We celebrate that now, Jesus, in your name. Amen.